It's time once again for another episode of All That's Jazz, the podcast that explores everything in the world of jazz. And here now is your host, Alan Scott. Hello and welcome to another episode of All That's Jazz. In August of 1958, a budding photographer by the name of Arthur Konofsky, better known as Art Kane, conceptualized the notion of assembling some of the greatest jazz musicians of all time on the steps of a Harlem brownstone for a photograph. That iconic photograph was included in an article in Esquire magazine about the golden age of jazz. This photo was called Harlem 1958, but it is more widely known as A Great Day in Harlem. A Great Day in Harlem is also the subject of a 1994 American documentary film directed by Gene Bach about the making of this famous photograph. It was nominated for an Academy Award for Best Documentary Feature. Much has been written and published about this photograph, and of course the story behind it, but it is best chronicled in a book called Art Kane, Harlem 1958, a visual history of the iconic shoot, edited by Art's son Jonathan Kane and Guido Harari. Jonathan is our guest today on All That's Jazz, as he shares with me the backstory and anecdotes about this epic event. Our conversation opens with Jonathan telling me about his father and his career. Art Kane did a lot of significant photography this, the photograph Harlem 1958 was this phenomenal launch to his career, but his career was fairly mega in, in, in many other ways. But I think that it pleased him very much that this very first thing that he did, well, the first major thing that he did was, was so resonant culturally. And my dad was firstborn native New Yorker. His family were Russian Jewish immigrants from Kiev. He was born in 1925 in the Bronx and grew up in the Bronx. So he's a, a New York native. I'm second generation. Uh, my brothers and I are second generation, but my dad's a, you know, we're, we're native New Yorkers. Well, you know, the, the whole thing in this experience of this photograph uh, is really, there's really such an, an incredible story connected to it, because if I have this correct, your, your father was actually not a photographer per se at the time that this happened, uh, being a creative art director. But then this Esquire magazine opportunity came along where they were going to do a piece on the golden age of uh, jazz. And your father was recruited into this uh, by accident, or how did it all take place? He recruited himself. <laughs> uh, yes, you've got that right. So Art Kane at the time was not a professional photographer. He was a, a successful young art director, but he he was restless as an art director and had a, had bigger and different ambitions for himself. He, he wanted to be the one making the images. So he had gone back to study uh, photography with the uh, design and photography guru, Alexei Brodovich, who was also mentor and teacher to Richard Avedon and Diane Arbus and Irving Penn. So my dad studied with him and then, and then he began shooting in his sort of as, as, as a side thing. So in fact, he had been placing photographs 
on album covers. As a matter of fact, um, he shot the cover of Errol Garner's classic album, Concert by the Sea, which was released in 1955. And actually, that's my mother on the cover. It was probably a vacation photo. But so Art Kane was sort of flexing his photographic muscles whilst still an art director, but not officially a photographer. So flash forward now a few years to 1958, word on, in the publishing world in New York City, like, as you mentioned, was that Esquire magazine was planning this special issue devoted to jazz. They were going to call it the golden age of jazz. And my dad just, I think, saw that as an opportunity to come up with some kind of a uh, big idea and if he could pitch his big idea to the editors at Esquire and he could get it done, that it would be a great way to launch a new career as a photographer. So he cooked up the idea of this big group portrait to get as many musicians as, he could, as they could together and, uh, and photograph them all together, sort of in, in, in a large group. He w took a meeting with Esquire's editor at the time, Harold Hayes, and also in attendance at that meeting was uh, their Esquire art director, Robert Benton, who went on to be a major filmmaker himself, Benton. Anyway, they both loved the idea and gave my dad the green light. At that point, Robert Benton said, okay, all right, we'll, we'll start looking for a big studio, a soundstage to shoot all these people on. And my father was immediately like, no way. This is not going to be in a studio. This has to be on location and it has to be in Harlem because Harlem is where jazz has a historic presence in New York City and, and he wanted it to be a community event. So they got a little nervous at that idea because, well, with an outdoor location, so many things can go wrong, like the weather, for example. Mm -hmm. And it's a little harder to, um, you know, logistically, but they said, okay, well, let's do it. At which point my dad started scouting locations and ended up there on 126th Street between 5th and Madison Avenues where, where the photo was taken, in fact. And um, there's actually, the, in the book, uh, with all the outtakes, we discovered that they had shot as well at another location on 126th Street, a block away between Madison and Park. Nobody had ever really th realized this before until I started really pouring over the outtakes in, uh, in the process of making the book with, with Guido Harari, the publisher. And uh, it was fascinating for me to actually see that there was a second location, same block of 126, but a block away. And just the idea that the, that group of 58 musicians all walked together <laughs> from one block to another is, is, is a fascinating thing to imagine for me. Well, the, the whole thing is fascinating uh, to, first of all, get 57, 58 jazz luminaries all in one place at one time at 10 o'clock in the morning. What are you kidding me? <laughs> yep. Right. I know 10 o'clock in the morning. That's about an hour and a half after bedtime for most musicians. <laughs> so yeah, that was really something. Also back in those days, you know, 1958, you know, the process of getting the musicians was a, a matter of phone calls to agents, record companies, word of mouth, um, notices put up in uh, musician union halls, uh, in clubs and recording studios. It, but as the day approached, 
there was no RSVP process. Nobody really knew who was who, if anybody was going to come. My father used to say, like, he thought he'd be, he'd be lucky if 15, 20 people showed up. So he arrived that morning early with, you know, with his assistant, Steve Frankfurt, and, uh, and the rest of the crew from Esquire. And they just sort of waited. And then around a little after 10 o'clock, some people started showing up and then more and more. And before they knew it, there were, there were 58 artists, including, I mean, really my father's heroes being a jazz fan. He was Dizzy Gillespie, Count Basie, Lester Young, Coleman Hawkins, Stuff Smith, Mary Lou Williams, and the list goes on and on. In fact, there were 58, although there's only 57 in the final and famous photograph, although in the book, in the outtakes, you will see there was one artist, Willie the Lion Smith, who just got, he was just tired. It was probably hot and he'd been standing around. So by the time the actual, the frame that my father chose as his perfect shot, Willie the Lion Smith was actually sitting on the steps next door. He'd just gotten tired. So, but he was there. Well, you know, and you're right. I mean, it's not only uh, is it interesting that they got everybody together like that, but these are like the who's who of jazz music. This was not studio players or the B-side player, the B-side players, rather. It's um, true. It's true. It was really they, and also what's interesting was it was a absolutely unprecedented cross-generational gathering. You had. Artists like Willie the Lion Smith, a stride pianist standing alongside a young young lions like Horace Silver, and and you had um, you know the uh, you know people like Dizzy Gillespie uh, and Coleman Hawkins, and uh, they're all giants, but all from different worlds and even different times of that their ascendancy happened and their influence happened. So f phenomenal that they were all there together, and like no ego, no pushing or you know who's going to stand first or get in the front or anything everybody was just so happy to 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 be there together and many of them you know seeing each other you know for the first time in years and others ne never having been anywhere near each other before absolutely unprecedented experience you know you're right about the fact that there was no one upstaging uh, or getting a little uh, pushy, so to speak, or tired or disinterested in what was about to take place. But instead, they seemed to just embrace it. And watching the documentary that uh, Gene put together, yeah, it, it shows that, you know, these they look like 50 odd, unassuming people just having a good time. Yeah, yeah. Rather than who they were. It's so hard to even imagine something like that ever happening. And nowadays there would be handlers and hair and makeup and groomers and, you know, just people fussing all over. And back in 1958, there was this, this 33-year-old kid with a borrowed camera who had this, you know, wild idea to do it. And a handful of people from the magazine and, uh, and then these 58 giants, musical giants, who just came because they thought it was a cool idea. And they came and they wanted to, be, to represent their art, their music, their community. And yeah, it's, it's a really beautiful thing. So did your father ever impart to you uh, 
some of the further reasoning behind the choice of that location. Obviously, as you said, he, he wanted it to be in the place of jazz, and that's Harlem, yeah. uh, but uh, also not in a studio. But what about the, the background uh, or the, 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 uh, the brownstones that were used in this? What, was there some sort of photographic eye that caught his attention, or has he ever mentioned that? Uh, he never mentioned that. My, uh, he did talk about the proximity to the uh, to the uh, train station around the corner, the Harlem Central Railroad, which was was a kind of an easy reference point for people to get there and, and find it. Uh, and I think also probably he probably started his location scouting on 125th Street, being a hub of commerce and activity in Harlem. And, but then probably realized, no, it's too busy here on 125th. So just started moving around some side streets. And then he's, my, my guess is that he found 126th Street pretty quickly. Uh, and, uh, and then he chose of those two locations that I mentioned, the other one was on the south side of the street. And the one he ended up with on the north side. So he was, probably figuring he would have two different possibilities of light mm -hmm. by having the choice of south side and north side. And then at the end of the day, that particular building uh, that he did choose just had beautiful architectural details. And it had a nice wide banister to the stairs that people could lean against as they were the people on the sides of the stairwell. And, and it was just a kind of a beautiful classic Harlem brownstone with good light. They were also, I think, very lucky that the day was overcast. So there's not a lot of hard light. There's not shadows to deal with. And we can see that, you know, that, that concern that the Esquire people had about it maybe raining. One of the outtakes shows the singer Jimmy Rushing is carrying an umbrella so I think it's entirely likely with the overcast light that they had that it was possible that it might have rained that day since Mr. Rushing was carrying an umbrella. Mm -hmm. You know, and it kind of looks that way that it, it, there was an overcast or something, but the lighting is exquisite. It, it's, you know, by maybe just by happenstance or, or maybe it was planning. I, I don't know, but I think that my dad had an uncanny ability for nature and circumstances to cooperate with him. I mean, you can't plan these things. You, the weather reports in 1958 weren't like we get now looking and seeing the 10 day forecast with, you know, they, they just got lucky with the weather and that light. And, and then my father was of course a good enough photographer, even, you know, to, to, to uh, have his exposures be just right and just so. And, um, and then to seize that moment, which is what it really comes down to, because at the end of the day, it doesn't matter what kind of a camera you've got or the large format, small format, the big lighting rigs or natural light. If you don't squeeze that shutter at just that perfect time, and if you don't have whatever it is, the charisma, to make people pay attention to you, especially when there's 58 of them having a ball across the street talking, you're not gonna get anything anyway. So 
he Art Kane worked his magic. That was, and even though he he had those album covers and those things happening before, that moment was clearly the watershed moment of his life, where he went home afterwards, quit his job afterwards, and hung up his shingle as a as a freelance photographer. And by the way, that issue of Esquire did. It wasn't only that photo. That after taking that photo, he spent the next two weeks going around the country photographing individual portraits of Louis Armstrong, Duke Ellington, Lester Young, and and Charlie Parker's tombstone. And um, and those photos also ran in that same issue of Esquire. So there was the spread of Harlem 58 and then these other phenomenal color photos, which were much more of where Art Kane went with his photography later of conceptual environmental photography, like taking Louis Armstrong out to Death Valley, photographing him at sunset in a rocking chair, uh, taking Duke Ellington, putting him on an A train and having the New York City subway shut down for 20 minutes while he crawled on the tracks and photographed uh, things like that. Um, and once that issue of Esquire was published and those pictures came out, my dad's career as a photographer took off like a rocket. Oh, and, and he has not only this iconic photo to his credit, but an extensive body of work that is absolutely marvelous and grew and grew and got more and more of attention and prominence and so forth. What, what was it like? Uh, I know you were only two years old at the time this particular photo of Harlem was taking place, but what was it like in the Kane household? Was there any buzz or talk about this? Uh, were the walls adorned with photos? Uh, afterwards? No, no. Um, you know, my first, well, being two years old, as you mentioned at the time, I, I, I can't really recall <laughs> too much about what was going on around the household. I know that my mom was very supportive of him transitioning his career. Uh, at that point, my brother and I probably shared a, a bedroom being babies uh, and the other bedroom was my dad's home studio. So that was, there was probably in there, probably covered with pictures on the walls and stuff. But, um, you know, shortly thereafter, he took up residency in a, a professional photo studio down in the Carnegie Hall building. And, and then, you know, growing up, uh, you know, my dad did a lot of music photography. He photographed a lot of rock musicians too. And in fact, one of one of his photographs of of the band the who is just about as famous to to rock and roll people as mm -hmm. harlem 1958 is to jazzers it was my dad's idea to wrap the who up in the british flag and make them pretend to be asleep in front of the carl schurz mon monument in morningside park in new york city and uh and that photo too is like almost everybody in the world well everybody in the world People uh, aware of, of of media and popular music are, are extremely familiar with that photograph as well. So how much of Art Kane wore off on you and your siblings? Uh, are there any photographers in the family? I know you're a musician. I'm a musician and a photographer. I, I've done automotive photography. I shot cars for Ford Motor Company for eight years. And... Um, and um, 
but music's my thing. And, and, and I'm also in my, since my father's passing, I, I take care of his archive. So, mm -hmm. um, but, uh, yeah, I, I like shooting cars because they don't talk to you. You just put them where you want and they sit there and look pretty, you know, or you, or you shoot them in motion, which was actually my favorite thing to do. A, a nice running shot, like through a state park somewhere out in Zion National Park and hanging out of the back of a pickup truck, shooting a car at 70 miles an hour. That's my idea of a good time. So how much industry has grown up around this photograph in Harlem? It, is it still getting residuals and have a value that is being uh, directed toward a foundation or something of that nature? Well, no, not really. I mean, you know, I don't really choose to. People come to me all the time and ask to use it for various purposes, and I almost always say no. I don't really choose to uh, commercialize the, the photograph. There's a poster available and uh, and we uh, and we like all art cane photographs. There's we do a, a limited edition prints through a network of, of art galleries, but uh, otherwise I don't really commercialize the picture because I I just have too much respect for the the 58 men and women who are there. Uh, I don't really want to let let it be used for commercial purposes. And but what's what has happened though is it's become a kind of a a global phenomenon of of uh, of great day homages. There have literally been dozens of them. Uh, I had mentioned to you Gordon Parks's Greatest Day in Hip Hop that was shot in front of the same building, but there have been great days in in Klezmer. At the uh, at the Essex Street Synagogue on the steps of the Essex Street Synagogue in New York City, there's been great days in Detroit, great days in Atlanta, great days in Hollywood with 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 Hollywood actors in front of a a movie set made to look exactly like. There's literally I have a collection, literally dozens of them. I did one of my own to celebrate the 60th anniversary of my father, but rather than use musicians. Uh, make it about musicians. I made it about the borough of Queens, where I live in New York City, which is the most most ethnically, culturally diverse neighborhood or place borough on planet Earth. London claims they're it, but actually Queens has more people from more different uh, uh, nationalities and uh, countries living there. So I did in front of the Unisphere, um, 137 people from 66 countries. Uh, and for me, it was uh, to honor my father, but to do something different than other musicians, because my father himself, if he was ever asked to do some, do it again, he'd say, no, I'm not going to do that again. I have to do something else. So, but for me, my, my, my thing was also about the strength of immigration. It was pushed back against the Trump administration and all the anti-immigrant rhetoric that was coming out of Washington, D.C. in 2018. So that my, mine is added to the list, but there have literally been dozens of, of homages and, they, and, and it continues unabated. There have been, there was Gene Box documentary, there was a Steven Spielberg film with Tom Hanks called The Terminal which literally is the, 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 the plot point of that movie is Tom Hanks traveling to New York City to collect the last, the autographs of the last surviving 
people in that photograph. So it, it's just this, uh, there's a global obsession with the photograph that continues to this uh, and, and, and grows. Well, speaking year. of the survivors of the photo, there are only two left, and that's uh, Benny Golson and Sonny Rollins. And I know you did something uh, on the 60th anniversary that included Benny Golson. Uh, but have you done or are you planning anything uh, with Sonny Rollins? Well, Sonny Rollins, um, Sonny has not been in, in good health in recent years, so he had declined to you know to participate in any of uh the the many events that have happened since the book was released but mr golson benny golson and i it's been a great honor for me to share stages with benny golson at the library of congress at the national jazz museum in harlem at the grammy museum in la and benny's in his 90s and he's 93 now and benny and i have done maybe a good six seven presentations together and it's been a real honor for me to get to know Mr. Golson and, and to to do presentations with him. Me speaking from the my father's perspective, but him getting to speak from the perspective of of a jazz giant who was actually there that day. So are there any other things, Jonathan, that you're planning uh, as as a legacy or a continued legacy for Art Kane? Or is this like bringing the curtain down on a beautiful chapter in life. Oh, no, no. Art Kane's legacy is very broad. Um, again, this is, it's, it's a remarkable thing that his first major assignment is, is such a big and important one. But the rest of his career encompassing everything from uh, innovations in fashion, photography, editorial photography, very important editorial work dealing with issues of the day, including the Vietnam War, civil rights movement, South African apartheid, the Native American movement. So there's lots of other Art Kane books in the works and presentations. And uh, there seems to be a, still lots of interest uh, with this Harlem 1958 to speak and give lectures and, and do concerts associated with it. So, yeah, no, we're, we're just getting started here, Alan. What would you like to see happen or would you like people to say, I know that man and I know that photograph? I, I like the idea that now more people will know his name because a lot of people will see a photograph like Harlem 1958 or that picture of the Who, and they go, I know that picture, but I never knew the name of the person. And, um, of course, if you follow photography, you know the name Art Kane. But his work reached so many more people than, than just art. Uh, I, I will tell you, uh, Jonathan, I, we've had this photo hanging in our dining room, uh, and it's been there for, I, I don't know, I can't even remember when we put it up. It's years and years and years. And of course, I'm in the business. Uh, I host a jazz radio show as well. And, uh, you know, to me, it's an important part of life. And I like to go by it. And I still look at it uh, frequently and, and just think about the concept and, and what it took to put together something like this. It must have been like herding cats in many ways to get them all together. And you got everybody in this photo looking forward except two. Uh, and it, 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 he finally captured that one moment. And, and it was truly a beautiful, wonderful, 
long lasting moment. It really was. It really was. And there's, it, there's so much like, as you say, there's so much going on in it. You, 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 it's impossible to get tired of looking at it because every time there you see it, there's a, you, you can pick up on some different uh, impression that, that, that one of those great artists is making. And those, pe those few people who aren't looking, that, that, that's a funny story too about the trumpet player, Roy Eldridge. He's got his head turned looking at Dizzy Gillespie. And he, he actually said in the film, Gene Box film, that, oh, Dizzy like made some crack at me and stuck his tongue out at right. me. And, and, uh, and then he turned, so he turned away and he was mad that he wasn't looking at the camera at that moment. But it's, again, it's just part of that moment. These two great trumpet players are kind of having a laugh and, you know, yeah, it's, uh, there's a reason Art Kane chose that frame. And, and Art Kane was always about that one image you know, like it's, it's fascinating to see the outtakes in the book and because of the nature of this shoot and all these great artists that are part of it. In most cases, Art Kane didn't really, wasn't interested in his outtakes and didn't really even want people to see them because he was about that moment that he chose. This is it. That's my statement. I have one final question. Has there been ever any attention further to reconnect with the kids that are in that photo? No, that's a darn good question. Oh, there's only one of those kids that anybody actually knew. One of them is the son of uh, of one of the musicians in, mm -hmm. in the photograph. And let's see if I can remember. Taft Jordan. Yeah, Taft, it's Taft Jordan Jr. I'm pretty sure is the is the little boy sitting right next to Count Basie. The other kids were, were just kids from the neighborhood. Now, by the way, like some of the uh, uh, people from Esquire were trying to shoo them away. And, and that was another thing my dad was like, no, the kids stay. The kids are bringing some magic to this, which they really did. He was right about that, as well as the people, the children sitting in the windows of the building. But, but as to your question, yeah, nobody has ever really come forward identifying themselves as one of those people. Yeah, I know there's nothing, to, there's no backstory on them. And also just the time, you know, we, the world wasn't so obsessed with like, nowadays, if you had kids showing up, they were going to be in a magazine, you'd have to have their parents sign a, a model release and give permission and all that. But back in those days, it just didn't happen. The kids just came along and sat down and and uh, and hung out. And then my dad actually liked them so much, he lined them up on the curb and and, and they brought some of their own magic to the photograph. But yeah, great question. I wonder wonder if any of them became musicians or what's, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, it certainly was a magical, as you said, and a beautiful moment in time and all the best to you. And thank you for being our guest on All That's Jazz. Thank you so much, Alan, it's a pleasure. Thank you for having me and all the best to you. Thanks for listening to this episode of All That's Jazz with Jonathan Kane, the son of Art Kane, the photographer and creator of the iconic jazz photo, Harlem 1958, better known as A Great Day in Harlem. We'd like to thank Ben Sedrin for the use of Mr. P's Shuffle as our theme song. And visit us again next time for another interesting conversation on All That's Jazz. If you liked today's episode, please leave us a five-star rating on the streaming service you use. All That's Jazz is available on every major streaming app, including Podbean, Apple Podcast, and Spotify, as well as Facebook, 
and online at allthatsjazz.net.